morning. Would you take God's word and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. For those that are visiting, we are engaged in a series looking at Solomon and how Solomon, who was considered the wisest person except for Christ, who had the power, who had the money, who had the time, who had the wise people around him, he could navigate and try to figure out if there's any satisfaction in doing anything that's lasting apart from God. And he begins with his premise that empty, empty, all is empty, meaningless, meaningless, vanity, vanity, whatever your translation says. It's, it's a word used that inside his own soul, he was devoid of any kind of contentment. Now the question is, do we believe what he's saying? Now as you're turning there, uh, I need to take care of some business, okay? It's always interesting that when I preach from a stage, I have a lot of people who say, stop looking at me. Okay? Now, there's, there's one person that says I never look at him. So I want to make sure I look at him this morning. Okay, right there? Okay, you see me, Nick? He's waving. I'm looking at you. Now, understand, Big Mike's blocking my view of you, so I kind of look over him. So, okay, that's taking care of business. When you look at life, it throws curves at us, doesn't it? Now, what that means is it doesn't always go the way we plan or want. And every one of us have experienced loss on multiple levels. Part of the anxiety and fear today in our current culture is some people are afraid they're going to lose everything they've grown accustomed to. In other words, life next week or next month or next year isn't going to be as whatever they've been accustomed to today. And what we fail to understand is there's far more loss we can experience than we have to at this point. Being a Christian does not guarantee we will not experience loss. I have with me this morning a piece of currency from Zimbabwe. And on it it says 100 trillion dollars. I'm not exaggerating. That's what it says. Um, This today is worthless, except I guess I checked a while back on eBay. They're going for about five bucks. But in Zimbabwe, because of the inflation, because of what the culture was going through, because of one government being overthrown, another government coming in, and the oppression was created, a poverty like you and I cannot even begin to dream of existed for the last 40, 50 years. When you study Zimbabwe's history, for those that are old enough, you know that it used to be called Rhodesia. And Rhodesia was one of the most prosperous countries in all of Africa. But with the shift of leadership, they became one of the poorest countries. I remember being there the first time, and it wasn't when there was $100 trillion, but it was more like, you know, 100,000. I remember dropping into the offering plate. I've always wondered what this would feel like. $5 million. I mean, that was a big wad of cash. It felt good to put that in. Now, to be truthful, it only cost me 300 US dollars. And to Zimbabwe people, if they saw me do that, my gift appeared to be generous. But sacrificially, It cost me nothing in terms of my lifestyle. Except that was part of the money that I was going to jump off the one bridge in 
big falls. They have bungee jumping, about $90 US, but when you saw the poverty, you're like, I can't do this. But that wasn't sacrificial. In fact, I was far less generous than the lady who gave a goat in the offering. And because they lacked currency, they gave goats, they gave vegetables, they gave what God had given them. So, all I'm saying is that the loss we think we've experienced and the loss that we maybe could experience on multiple levels isn't anywhere that we can imagine at this point. And seeing and experiencing reactions from loss, well, just take this past week. Think about what happened yesterday in Turkey where a wedding existed and somebody with a suicide bomb came in and killed 30 people and injured 94. They're experiencing loss in which would have been a day of celebration. Think about our own country and what's been going on in Milwaukee. And think about, and again, this is my perception on things, how we're moving away from justice on all levels to what I call tribalism. Now, if you want a good example of tribalism, go back to Rwanda in 1994. Two different people groups, one in political power and one not in political power. And in 100-day period, close to 1 million people were slaughtered. Another 2 million people were displaced as refugees. All over tribalism. See, tribalism doesn't look for justice. Tribalism looks for whoever's in power, whoever controls, is the one who'll do the most damage. If you're interested in kind of doing a backdrop to this, they made a movie about it called Hotel Rwanda. I think it's still in rental places. Now, saying all that and talking about navigating life and navigating loss, according to the Bible, there's two kinds of people. Now, you may think there's more, but Solomon says there's two kinds of people. There are the wise and there are the fools. And being wise and being a fool has nothing to do with education. There's educated fools and there's uneducated fools. There's educated wise and there's uneducated wise. But what's interesting is that while Solomon's life was not going south in terms of loss, his conclusions are very similar to people who experience tremendous loss. He talks about life being empty and useless. He, he describes it as chasing the wind. And he's angry. He's angry at the reality that someone else is going to get everything that he worked hard for. And you can almost hear Solomon saying this. They didn't earn it. So that's what he's been talking about up to this point. Now in chapter 7, he begins to kind of roll back the storm clouds. He begins to let the sun shine through. And he begins sharing some ideas that we need to consider in terms of do we want to be wise or do we want to be fools? And he has 11 ways of the wise. Now I know what some of you are thinking already. The pastor has an 11-point sermon. Yes, I do. And you're looking at your watches saying it's already 1117. Now, when you look at this chapter, he uses these couplets. They're comparative couplets. And a key word is better. And so I titled this The Good and Better. There's too many people that settle for what they think is good when God has so much better in store. But think of it this way. Every single decision and all the emotions that we experience, 
that we make are based on our understanding of reality. There's a story about a woman who goes into an airport. She goes to the gift shop. She buys a newspaper and a package of cookies. Sits down on a chair and begins to read. On another chair beside her, and there's a table between them, a small coffee table. A gentleman sits down. He, too, has a paper, and he's reading. And as she reads, she reaches for a cookie from the bag on the center of the table. Now, a few minutes later, she reaches for another. And to her surprise, the package is half empty. In fact, it's now sitting on top of the man's briefcase. She's thinking, how unbelievably rude. And she grabbed the bag of cookies, moved them back to her side of the table, and she took another cookie. About 30 seconds later, she hears the rustling of cellophane, and she watched this gentleman remove the last cookie. And she glared. Women, you know how to glare. We call it the evil eye from a man's standpoint. Hey, I heard a name in there. And this rude stranger, what's he do? He offers her half the cookie. And she was angry. And she gathered her things and she moved to the other side, giving him the stare down the whole way. And she stood there and stared him down until they got in the plane. An hour and a half into her flight, she was still angry, still upset her. And then she reached into her pocketbook to get a pen and she pulled out an unopened package of cookies. We call this, people, a worldview. And what's critical to our worldview is our perspective of God. This is what Solomon's saying. You take God out of the picture, here's a worldview. You can do this, 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 and this. Most of what people try to attain to today, in terms of power, in terms of money, in terms of stuff, in terms of houses, in terms of vacation homes, in terms of party life, in terms of everything. He says you can do all that, and if you take God out of your worldview, it will be empty, it will be useless. Just like chasing the wind. But what's critical to our worldview is how we view God. And I don't know how you view God this morning, but you need to sit down and take account of that. It deals with our ethics, what we define as right and wrong. It deals with our humility. Now, you say that's kind of interesting, putting in a worldview. Uh, humility always looks at the mirror first. And what's predominant in our culture is we always look at everybody else first, and we blame, and we accuse, and we point fingers. And they took our cookies when our cookies were in our own bag. If you didn't understand that story, she was eating his cookies. (laughs) Critical for our worldview is how we view the world around us. Just not our country, but nations around the world. Now, you hear me say this so many times, but it comes from a particular worldview. And there's a lot of implications I can't get into this morning on this, but listen to this. As Christians, as kingdom of God kids, we are not defined by our circumstances. We are defined by Christ. Amen? Amen. And that's a worldview. And that's one we apply to every circumstance that we go through. So Solomon gets into foolish thinking and wise thinking. Eleven ways. 
And some of you are glad I'm starting because you're still saying he has 11 things. We'll go through these fairly quickly. Here's what he says, first of all. In chapter 7, verse 1a. Seek to do right every day. A good name is better than precious ointment. For, for women, what's important is, is smelling well. And for men, it's their cologne. And so what Solomon is doing is he's comparing our character, who we are, a good name, with a pleasant smell. And what Solomon's saying is that our, our reputation goes before us. And is it pleasant or is it not so pleasant? And he reminds us that any reputation is built at one brick at a time. And so he says, every day you wake up, if you want a good name, just do what's right. Now, this does not mean everyone will like you for doing what's right. Let's remember they crucified Christ for doing what was right. But to many people, his character was a pleasant smell. To the religious leaders, they said he stank the place up. So Solomon says, listen, regardless of what is all out there, center yourself on God and do what is right every day. A good name is better than a precious ointment. Number two, live every day, one day at a time. You know, one of the things, if you get a chance to go up and sit in our discovery recovery class, is you'll hear this constantly. One day at a time, through their addictions. One day at a time, through their emotions. One day at a time. And Solomon writes, in the day of death, when the day, and the day of death is better than, and I'm inserting those words because they were in the first part of the verse, is better than the day of birth. It is better to go in the house of mourning than to go into the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Now, the average person has about 27,000 days to their life. What's nice is everybody has the same amount. It's an opportunity to learn, to love, to leave an impact. And Solomon says, listen, live every day, but think about your last day. What do you want people to say about you? On that last day, if you could attend your own memorial service, what is it you would have people say about you then make choices that are consistent with that set of core values and make sure those core values have God at their center see a Christian life is lived with God that never ends death is a transition that's all it is and we will see Christ our Lord and Savior face to face for all eternity and even though we cannot even begin to grasp that That's a reality. That's what we believe about God. He's eternal. And that defines how we live in this world because this world is so minuscule compared to all of eternity. So live every day, one day at a time. Number three, learn to lament. Verses three through four. And you see how these build upon each other. They all go together. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness, a face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Now, understand, too, when you look at wisdom couplets, you can sit there and say, but, you know, it's good to laugh sometimes. That's absolutely right. But that's not the point. The point here is that our losses teach us. In sorrow and pain, things become clear. And we live in a culture that celebrates wins publicly and losses privately. He says, turn the page. I know for me, 1989, massive shift in my worldview. My mom got cancer and she died six months later. 
Things I thought were important lost all their value. Things I had set aside because I didn't have the time were brought to the front. And there are things that in this world, Solomon says, we should grieve. We should have sorrow over. One of the classes that's being taught this morning had to deal with the whole issue of pornography. We should be sorrowful over the destructive nature of pornography in our culture. We should be sorrow and grieve over the destruction of marriage and the family that goes on today on multiple levels. We should grieve the things that grieve God. And what grieves God? Let me give you one thing that grieves him. It's when the church stops being the church. It's when, for whatever reason, we become the center of our church rather than Christ. Paul writes in Ephesians 4, verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit. And around that, he has these things about don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, but instead do this, 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 this. And he has this unique phrase in there. He says, you know, you haven't learned these things in Christ. So align yourselves with Christ. Next, Solomon tells us in verses 5 and 6, Keep one ear open and one ear, one ear closed. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of, a, of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Song of fools is a nice way of talking about flattery. You know, people flatter some people. That's the song of fools. For as the cracking of thorns under a pot, so is laughter of fools. This also is vanity. So he says, keep your ear closed to the fool and keep it open to the wise person. And he compares a fool and flattery to, to thorns in a fire. They burn bright, but they burn short, and they provide no heat. They can't cook anything. And so he's telling us that fools are shallow and quit when things get tough. They show a lot of emotion, but very little wisdom. So keep your ear open to the wise and keep your ear closed to the fool. Next, shortcuts or dead ends. Verse 7. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the hearts. Again, you note the condition here. Everything is a matter of the heart. And he's saying, listen, when money's short and dead ends are tight, bribe reveals often that we are lovers of money rather than lovers of God. So in current terms with us, if you cheat on your taxes, that's not wise. It shows you're more concerned about God taking care of you than you are money. If you cheat God out of giving, and again, the standard of giving is generosity. It's always interesting. I, I discovered this kind of recently. I never knew this existed. Um, you can do your taxes on TurboTax. And if you give too much money away, uh, a thing comes up and says, you have a high chance of being audited because your giving is inappropriate to the income you make. I thought, wow, that really should come up in all our income tax returns. We're called to be worships of God, not money. And he's saying, listen, when it comes to, sh- to money, there's no shortcuts. And so being a follower of God, being a follower of Jesus Christ for us, there's no shortcuts. You take a shortcut, you will pay. Next, make the last day the best day. Again, we're going back to that thing about mourning. Verse 8, better is the end of a thing that, than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. 
And here's what he means by this. Proud people start well and finish badly. Patient people finish well. Do you know the story you were taught about that when you were a kid? The tortoise and the hare. Paul says it this way. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. He's not suicidal. He's just saying, listen, this world and everything it has to hold for us is all lost. In fact, he says that. He says, my money, my name, my reputation, everything people think about me, my own life, it is all worthless compared to knowing Jesus Christ. In fact, when I see him face to face, the only thing I want to hear is, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Good job, Paul. And no matter where you are in life, Solomon says, Choose now to make the last day the best day. It goes back to this one day at a time because none of us know what tomorrow holds. Amen? Next, and let me clarify what I mean by this. Be a good dog. (laughs) Verse 9. Do not be quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Now, I grew up with animals. We lived on a farm, and we had pets. My dog's name was Charlie. And I categorized dogs into three categories. There was good dogs, there was nice dogs, and there was mean dogs. Now, we all knew to stay away from the mean dogs. They're the ones that let their anger get a hold of them. The nice dogs, I didn't want a nice dog. You know what a nice dog was? No matter who showed up, the tail was wagging. They're like, pet me, feed me. And if you weren't there or if someone was kind of beating on you, they'd sit there and smile like, yeah, this is great. I'm just watching the show. That's a nice dog. I wanted a good dog. A good dog was, they were great with kids. They never bite anybody as long as you were there. But if anybody tried to harm you or someone tried to break in your house when you weren't there, they were protective in nature. And see, God wants us to be good dogs. He wants to live with controlled emotions. There are some things we should get angry at. There are some things that we should grieve. But we don't let our anger get out of control. We don't let it get better of us. We don't let our grief get the better of us. And those around us. So Solomon says be a good dog. Not a nice dog or a mean dog. Next. You cannot move forward looking backward. Verse 10. Say not why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Too many people live in the past. Two ways. Good old days. And of course we rewrite the good old days don't we? In fact, we're selective about the good old days. None of us want to go back to when we had outhouses. I isn't, I'm not quite in that category, but I remember going to camp meeting that outhouses and all those kinds of things. And those are the good old days that we remember other things we say we want to keep. Then there are those that live in their past and they're haunted by their difficulties. They're haunted by, they're haunted by their, their sin. They're haunted by everything that's gone wrong. And you know what Solomon says? He says, stop it. Knock it off. The good old days can help us with the present and future, but you don't live there. You're not defined by your past. You're only defined by Christ in the present and Christ in the future. So it doesn't matter where you've been or who you are or how bad or how good you think you are. It has no bearing on today or tomorrow. Now, in terms of application, I'm going to ask this question. And you don't have to answer, but answer in your own mind and heart. 
How many, how many of you want GBC to grow into the future with God leading us? Here's what Solomon says. If that's true, you have to stop looking to the past. And that's true for us physically. How many people at their present age can't do what they used to when they were 20? <laughs> and yet we try. And we wonder why it hurts so much. We can't live in the past emotionally. You know, the big one there in scripture is forgiveness. If you don't forgive, you hang on to that and it will destroy you and tear your soul apart. Spiritually. A lot of times spiritually when people hold them to the past like the Pharisees did, they become legalists instead of Christ followers. We talk about how Christ transforms one's life. But how many times do we want nothing to change? Next. Wisdom and wealth are wonderful. Verses 11 and 12. Listen to what he says here. Wisdom is good with an inheritance. An advantage to those who see the sun. For protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Now, he says two things here. One is that wisdom helps us to find true wealth. And once we have a definition of true wealth, then we no longer become lovers of money. That's the first thing he says. And when and if we get the money, wisdom helps us to understand the nature of it and helps us to be generous. See, wisdom helps us navigate the difficulties of life. Foolishness shipwrecks us. And when you talk about money, it's the God of this world. We know this. And many people are shipwrecked because they follow the advice of fools. Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, and you will be secure. The only thing that we're securing is Christ. There's nothing else that is secure. Pastor, I heard a story from, had a meeting with one of their new believers he was like two, three years old in his faith. And he sat in his office one day, the pastor's office, and said, listen, pastor, I just need to have someone tell me that I'm not crazy. And of course, the pastor's like, wonder what's going on in his life. And he goes on to say this. He goes, every year since I've become a Christian, when I do my taxes, my accountant and my lawyer for the business tells me I'm a fool for giving so much away. Think about that. Do you realize sometimes that being wise means some people will call us fools? It also means, too, that sometimes we're fools and there's a group of people that calls us wise. Next statement. I forget what number we're at. I don't have them listed. God has two hands. Okay? God has two hands. Now, this statement may confuse you, but let me explain what it means. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? A lot of times scripture says, no, no, no. God makes straight what's been crooked. This is reverse. Here's what this means. God has created a good and perfect world. Our sin has made it less than perfect. Amen? <laughs> this journey through life has its ups and downs. It has difficulties and joys. The psalmist says it rains on the just and the unjust. And there's times we're moving forward and backwards. And so Solomon says God has two hands. One's active and one's passive. 
to use technical theological jargon. Sometimes God acts and it's good for us. And other times he allows and we go through difficulties. And Solomon says you need to accept both from him. It goes back to Job when his wife says, curse God and die. And his response was this. Do you remember? He goes, wife. He probably didn't say wife. He probably called her by name, but don't know what that is right now. Should we only accept the good from God and not the bad? I mean, this is what faith looks like in the face of pain. We trust him to go through it with him. Now, let me make an application here. I'm going to make one statement. That's it. From our standpoint, then, as kids of the kingdom, we have to understand that the president is not our savior. Christ is. And that's true for the next coming election. Amen? Next statement. Hold everyone and everything with an open hand except God. And this is number 11. So some of you are thinking, wow, he got through all those. Great. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other. So that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Sold everything and everyone with an open hand. It's all his. We are stewards. They're all gifts. We've been talking about this. Except for God. Hang tight on him. Now, every single day you have three options when you go through hard stuff. There may be more, but I'm going to reduce it to three. Here's the first. When bad things happen to you, you get bitter. When you lose who and what you enjoy. And you allow that bitterness to define you. Number two. You enjoy no one and nothing, so you avoid getting hurt. You just kind of stay away because... You know what? I'm going to put this protective layer around me. I'm going to build a wall. I'm going to shut everybody out. Or number three, enjoy what you have for as long as you can have it. And when it's gone, be grateful to God for what you had. See, here's the problem. We hang on to things we should not and let go of things that we should hang on to. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. And everything else will take care of itself. Open hand. Hang on to God. And we have anxiety over things we should not because we lack an intentional focus on Christ. And and he is described as the author and finisher of our faith. Now let me conclude this way. If you look at the 11 statements, they confuse you. I'm going to reduce it down to one statement and take this home with you. Here's what Solomon says in chapter 7. See life the way God sees it and fall in line. Say that again. See life the way God sees it and fall in line. Now that requires humility. Humility means that we look in the mirror. Far too many of us are concerned about others first. And it's always, well, how could they? Humility always begins with how could I? So many times we lack the humility and we arrogantly assume that we are better than others, that we are far more enlightened, that we are wiser and we are more informed. Humility always begins with, 
Lord, forgive this sinner. Remember the story about how people entered the house of the Lord to pray and there was one in the front saying, you know, Father, I'm glad I'm not like the person in the back. The person in the back said, Lord, forgive me, a sinner. And if we're ever gonna get this tough love thing right, by tough love, I mean, you know, scripture gives no excuse for us not loving. In fact, it reduces it down to love people who intentionally seek to destroy you. That's called an enemy. We have to do it from humility. In which in our country, that's really, really hard. Because we arrogantly assume things that are not true. We live in a land of a lot of freedom, of a lot of wealth. And God chose for us to be born here. We could have equally been chosen to be born somewhere else. And all this privilege is simply that. They are gifts to be enjoyed, but also to be used, to be generous, so that other people can see Christ. I'm going to close. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. We have a closing song. We're going to use a prayer that was written by Reinhold Niebuhr back in the early 1900s. And this prayer has been adopted by those recovering from addiction. It's called the Prayer of Serenity. And before we sing this song, we're going to pray this prayer together. I think it's on a screen. Will you pray with me? God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as the pathway to peace, taking as he did this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that he will make all things right if I surrender to his will that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with him forever in the next. Amen.